Welcome to Books with Noah, a podcast where I talk with my friends about their favorite books. So today on Books with Noah, I've got Daniel here with me. Daniel's a friend of mine, and when we were talking about Ender's Game, I realized that he would be the perfect person to have on the podcast for this book. Daniel, welcome to Books with Noah. I think maybe the author might be the perfect person to have on the, on the podcast, but I'll see. I'll do what I can. I've probably read it maybe more times than he has. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, welcome. So, just to uh, start with the the overview and the basics, um, Ender's Game was released in 1985. It's a sci-fi futuristic, you know, star traveling civilization, right? And it's about Ender, who's the third son of this family, uh, I guess third child. There's the oldest son, the the girl, um, the daughter, and him. And um, it's a really good book, without you know saying too much uh, so soon. But um, and there was a movie that came out in 2012 that everyone was kind of like, eh. But the book is <laughs> is pretty amazing. So, um, what would you like to add to kind of fill in the the premise? Sure. Well, um, you know, you said that that we were a spacefaring civilization, and I think we're a spacefaring species, but we haven't colonized, and that's kind of the problem. the 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 premise of the book, the 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 grand lines of it, um, kind of rest on the fact that humanity has managed to to beat back an alien invasion and now we're trying to find their home world and uh ensure that the humans win whatever galactic war there is to be had and that sets up this this uh this kind of premise that underpins ender's entire personality which is that the earth is over overcrowded and overpopulated and he uh he's the parents of um of of geniuses basically and in the in the search for lieutenants and commanders and uh, officers to basically lead this intergalactic war, his parents were authorized to have a third child, which is something that uh, that wasn't wasn't part of um, wasn't a normal that wasn't a normal thing that uh, that that families were allowed to have. So you've got a child who's born. Uh, already with this sense of responsibility or, or, or outsiderness. Um, and, uh, I think the the most important thing I could, I could say to people this early on in the podcast is, uh, science fiction for me can be really heady. It can also be really bad. Like, but just like with any fantasy or any, any lore, if there's human truth at the foundation of a story, it the context doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're in Greece or in Italy, which can be as foreign to someone else on the planet as you know aliens and uh, and you know spaceships. Uh, so it, it really matters what you're trying to say. And Orson Scott Card here, I think, was was trying to get some get at some human truth that he didn't know how to how to put into a Jane Austen style. <laughs> retro uh timeline so he he went forward in order to find his ability to express it i agree with you and one of the things i love about sci-fi in general is that they do try to tackle a lot of those existential human questions uh in a fictional way that a lot of other novels can't 
Um, and I think one of the things that makes this one so effective is just how believable it is and how like believable but like visceral you know like you're following around Ender. Ender's a child so the world is being revealed to you as it would be to a child and I think that makes it very accessible and uh, many of my friends who don't read sci-fi have all read Ender's Game and really love it so I would say that if you read one sci-fi book it should be Ender's Game if I can just plug that yeah, I I would do it. He um I read the the re-release uh from 2000. I mean, I've I've read every copy and every version of this book, I'm sure. Uh but I I for the purposes of preparing for this this podcast, I reread the the latest published version which has an introduction from the author and he he said something that I liked. He basically said a lot of authors who are trying to create great works make things complicated in order to please critics who somehow make a living out of pretending like the best parts of literature are only accessible to them. And he said, look, I have a master's degree in literature, but I deliberately tried to avoid all of those games and gimmicks. I wanted the purest essence of the story to be as accessible as possible. But that doesn't mean that this book isn't able to be um, dug into to reveal additional layers of meaning that are that are hidden from the primary storyline, the, the the only uh, maybe contemporary example that people may be able to to relate to is a Pixar movie. It's something where if you go with your kids, your kids are going to get one thing out of it, and you're going to go with you're going to get something else. And those are master storytellers that know how to craft narratives that are accessible to different levels of I don't want to call it maybe consciousness, but different perspectives are going to get different, valuable, equally coherent narratives. Yeah, I think it's a great analogy. And I would go so, on and say there are several other books in the series, and they are not nearly as accessible. <laughs> so <laughs> he definitely yeah. pulled that off, and it's impressive. And I would say that he also does it in a way that's not <clears throat> super technologically you know, it's not about the technology, whereas there are other sci-fi books no. where, you know, there will be 10 pages on how a certain starship works. And, you know, he doesn't do that. And I think that. Oh, you read that one, too? <laughs> yeah, that one. Right. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, we're going to have that on here in, in two weeks from now, I think. So um, yeah. wonderful. So, it, yeah, uh, I was going to say the, the other thing that makes it really accessible and interesting is that. You could ask yourself the question: What what is a child like? What's a child's book? What's a children's book? You know, I think this is in the in the young adult section. Um, I think I read this when I was in elementary school. I went to the librarian and I said, "All right, I've read everything. I've read everything in the young adult child children's section. Like, what's next?" And she said, "Have you read Ender's Game?" And when I said I hadn't, this is the book that she recommended. And one of the one of the interesting things about this book is that Ender never considers himself a child. So, if you're a child. And you and you're feeling somehow, and I as an outsider, you're feeling like you're not really a child. If you read this book, you're immediately going to identify with the main character. That's what happened to me. Um, and if you're an adult reading this, you get to relive a childhood with the maturity of an adult, but living it and experiencing it through a child who is much closer to you than a C-spot run children's story would be. Um, so something that the author says in the introduction, uh, is he says, I never felt that my emotions and desires 
he's talking about when he was a, when he was uh, younger. I never felt that my emotions and desires were somehow less real than adult emotions and desires. And and that to me is 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 really uh, profound because if you're a child and you feel like your emotions and desires should be taken more seriously, perhaps than your parents or your teachers or your classmates are taking them, uh, this book gives you something to identify with. And yet, if you read it when you're an adult, you're getting to experience a new kind of childhood. Maybe it's the same as your own, or maybe it's a different way of looking at a child. This could change your relationship with children if you become aware or you are sensibilized, sensitized, excuse me. Uh, if you're sensitized to how, how or reminded of how real childhood emotions, desires, and experiences are. It might be easy to forget it as an adult. I haven't, but um, I don't know. Maybe some people have. The, the author goes on to say, Ender's Game asserts the personhood of children and those who are used to thinking of children in another way. Um, I, I just, I really applaud that he managed to, I mean, like we said in the beginning, this is not a book about sci-fi or about the exact weapon systems or whatever that are designed. This is not the Tom Clancy of sci-fi. This is something much more human. Um, and it's magnificent because of that. I agree. And there is this tension and I guess exploration of the relationship between the elders who know best and Ender, who is this, you know, prodigy genius that they're trying to cultivate. Right. And it goes back and forth between, you know, oh, Ender's doing some, you know, stuff that maybe isn't the best for him or he's being isolated away from his, you know, cohort. Is that good? Is that bad? And they're all, you know, the elders are all fighting with each other saying, I don't know, you're going to destroy him. Is he going to be okay? And I guess it's, it's probably a thought on parenting as well, right? Because that every parent probably goes through that thinking about their own kid. You know, are we destroying him or are we making him stronger? I don't know. Maybe it's both at the same time. You put you you really put your finger on it. Uh, to me, maybe the most fundamental question at the core of this entire book is: Do adults know best? the 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 whole story of this book is about how the adults are trying to create an environment in which children could end up saving the world. But children, if they were told what was going on as if they're adults, according to the adults that exist in this book and their their thought process. They, they wouldn't be able to do it if they knew what they were doing. So the adults have, are in opposition with the children and have to trick them into doing things that they would never ordinarily do. And that is this sci-fi, you know, the aliens and the invasion and all that stuff is just, just the, 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 the bricks used to build the wall at the core of this thesis, which is, do adults really know best? Um, and, and the details don't matter. That question matters. And it's, it's, it's... It's so, <laughs> it's so impactful right. uh, if you hold that question with you. And not to give too much away, but when, you know, later, later on when Ender becomes an adult, everyone's asking him for, you know, what, what do we do? And he's like, why do you think I know? Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like I'm yeah. not special, right? I was just good at video games, right? So I guess there's that, uh, yeah. there's probably that aspect, right? Where it's like one of the few... Uh, novels where you know becoming good at games is something that is rewarded and um, you know looked highly upon uh, which is probably not the same as today's society unless you're 
on Twitch making a lot of money. Yes and no, because what's really interesting is that um, I think neuroscience research, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so I won't go too far out on this limb, but I think that um, we're showing our own ignorance as to the best ways of learning. I think the ways that we try to teach children, engage children, and just cram by rote or by repetition uh, information into their brains and then have them regurgitate it for a test and then move on with whatever the, the educational system is. I think there are enough, uh, there are enough, there are enough studies that show that that maybe isn't the best way for people to learn. So in this, in this future, uh, children are taught almost exclusively. I mean, yes, they do attend classes and learn math and things, but the, but the way that they teach them strategy and tactics is all through games. And I find that I, I mean, I, I like the sound of that. I like the idea of that. Yeah. The uh, idea of rote memorization is deeply depressing to me. And I suspect to many other people, um, I'll try not to make too many enemies of people with, you know, education degrees, but, um, yeah. And, and uh, sure, uh, you know, uh, algebra or calculus, maybe not, <laughs> able to be learned uh, fully intuitively or fully in an embodied way, although you'd be surprised. Uh, geometry, maybe, but leadership, that's tough to learn out of a book. Uh, and and this book makes a big deal about showing how Ender really understands that he's being placed in opposition, both with the adults and with the other children in order to isolate him. But that isolation causes him to develop coping strategies that end up being leadership skills. Uh, so he has this grudging understanding as he's decoding and decrypting what's happening to him. He understands that it's actually one of the one of the ways in which he is going to do his best. Um, it's it's it's. Uh, I think we're all used to maybe uh, being kind of pandered to in entertainment, where. Uh, <laughs> If you watch a movie and someone's going to open the door that they shouldn't open, you're screaming, don't open the door. And Ender might be sitting there going, I know I'm not supposed to open this door, but the only way this plot moves forward is if I open this door. So I'm going to open. Are you ready? It's a completely different interaction with the reader because as Ender understands what's happening, he explains it to you, uh, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Uh, and... Um, it's it's really amazing how the author Orson Scott Card was able to recreate so much psychological interplay. But you know, he creates a, a a whole new system of interactions between adults and and children in this new futuristic kind of battle school paradigm. And then he, with such clarity and such authenticity, writes down what Ender's feeling. Uh, it's it's just flabbergasting to me <laughs> right and if i could just kind of comment on one more thing about uh ender's emotional state it, it and why it's such a good book for adults is that not only is he a child right but he also has so many characteristics of being an adult right it's not he's not one-dimensional he's kind of this bipolar isn't the right word but multifaceted where he's got you know the typical experiences of being a being young or being human where, you know, he wants to be surrounded by friends and he wants to be loved and he has these needs, but then he also is a lot more mature and intelligent than, you know, most people are even as adults. So he's able to craft his way around and learn how to best fit into his environment. And I think that's an interesting paradigm. 
that he can be both a child and an adult at the same time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And like I said, the, if you read it as a child or if, as a, as a young adult and you have the maturity to, to see that you're going to identify with it. If you read it as an adult, you're not going to be bored by the limited depth uh, of the emotions or the understanding that the, the main character has about the world. There's something there for everyone. For sure. I, I want to talk about his siblings real quick because a lot of how Ender is defined in the world, uh, I find results from a contrast with his siblings. So we mentioned that Ender was the third, and the reason he was authorized to be the third is that the the parents' first two children were kind of this gold. It's essentially the Goldilocks story. Their first oldest child was uh, who's named Peter is too aggressive, so he wouldn't be he would be so aggressive as to be reckless if he was a commander, and they needed someone with more empathy, more uh, restraint, more um, no less. Um, yeah, I, just with with more empathy, and more restraint. So they had a second child, and that that child was Valen, uh, Valentine, Valentina, Valentine. Oh, yeah, I don't remember. Valentine, thanks. So Va Valentine, and Valentine was the porridge that was maybe too cold or too warm. However you want it. Yeah, probably too warm. Yeah. she was too em empathic. Uh, she was too kind, and she would never be able to make in the eyes of the uh, of the leadership of the International <laughs> Battle School training program, she would never be able to make the sacrifices or uh, endure the kind of violence she would want to protect her soldiers too much to be able to send them into battle. And so they said, okay, we need a, we need a third one and hopefully this will be a mix of the two. And Ender's childhood was caught between this kind of sociopathic, violent, aggressive, dominating older brother and his absolute love and recognition for his sister that you know that that loved and protected him as much as she could as he was growing up and at several key moments in the story when he when ender is kind of uh what i th at the edge of what we would call today burnout uh his his sister is reintroduced into the story by the adults because they say we know that that this is the key to his heart and it's it's uh, I, again i can't overstate the the what i consider to be the emotional sophistication of this book but Ender, at a lot of points, gets in touch with a part of himself that is so effective, so ruthless and lethal, not in the sense that he's killing people, but that he knows how to win thoroughly and fully. He knows how to dominate. And so if, if you have this, both this capacity for you know, full domination and you also have this empathy that allows you to really understand your enemy, it's normal to have these conflicting feelings and what ender felt at certain critical points in the in the book was i'm turning into a monster i'm turning into a monster there's too much violence there's too much aggression i'm turning into a monster and i don't like this and re reconnecting with his sister's unconditional love reconnecting with being reassured that that he's not doing anything wrong or that he's not going to go down the slippery slope is uh is what allows him to move forward with his quest, if you will. Yeah, that's profound. Speaking of, yeah. Speaking of quests, another thing that's really interesting about this book is, I don't know, no, have you read The Hero's Journey, uh, Joseph Campbell? I have not. 
So the hero's journey, um, not to talk about a different book, but he identified that in all the great myths and legends and a lot of books, the, the hero follows a, follows a predictable journey. And Ender's Game does not at all follow that pattern. So it really falls outside the main narrative. One of the tropes of the hero's journey, for example, is in the beginning, you refuse. So uh, you're asked to go on an epic quest and you decline. And then, so in The Hobbit, the Hobbit declines and then he goes running after him. That's when, you know, that's a trope of the hero's journey. Another one is that there's a magical object that gives gets given to you that allows you to win the war. So like some queen somewhere says, oh, this is the ancient sword of whatever and allows you to win the war. And there's a statement um, about halfway through the book where he says, uh, he says something like, um, I, I went to, he, he was transferred from one department of the school to the other and he went to, to his locker to grab his things and then he said, actually, everything I, Everything of value I have is in my head and in my hands. And it, it, Orson Scott Card does not rely on any external things. He builds it up so that the character is the most effective part of this entire operation. Um, I, I think the most sophisticated tool that Ender uses to win is a piece of string. Literally, that's the, that's the only thing that I can think of that he uses to win that he kind of scrounged up for himself. Right. <laughs> That's a fairly zen, Maybe right? some soap. You, you are everything you need, right? Yeah, it really is. Because I think a lot of people wait for something. I don't know. I I certainly would love for someone to come. Oh, the reason that, you know, you aren't as successful as you want to be is because you didn't have the sword of whatever. Or they didn't have the chainmail armor of this. And if you go into every <laughs> business meeting or if you go down to program something, you'll have all the right answers. No, uh, that's not reality. That's a fairy tale. And, um... I, I really like that Ender is completely self-sufficient in the narrative. Yeah, I love it as well. It's awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I, I could go on about this book forever. <laughs> Re listeners, if you're still with me, thank you for listening to me. <laughs> Just go go on and gush and talk about this. Um, it's it's a book, I think, I think I read it in four hours. I couldn't tear my eyes away from the page the first time I read it and I probably reread it twice the next day and maybe another couple times that week I returned it to the library and I've probably read it 30 times since it's you know it's kind of like a maybe it's a blue blanket uh, <laughs> um, if you've seen the producers you know what I'm talking about but it's uh, it's something I enjoy going back to because maybe it reminds me of my childhood a little bit maybe it also reminds me to that children can 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 live in this weird space between play and serious duty, and uh, I I'd like to think that that's possible for all of us. Lovely, Daniel. Thank you for being part of Books with Noah. <laughs> Thanks, Noah. Thank you for listening to Books with Noah. Please follow us on Twitter at Books with Noah. Also, many of these episodes are available on YouTube in video format.